Hi, I'm Paul Davenport and welcome back to the Bible Feed podcast and to part two of our discussion about the ideas of fallen angels, a divine council, and that whole worldview which has received some prominence recently through the works of scholars like Michael Heiser and his book, The Unseen Realm. Many of the ideas around angels that sinned and fell, etc., are not new. They've been around since at least 100 years before Christ, with some of the highly imaginative writings produced in the years between the Old and New Testaments, like the Book of Enoch, which creatively speculated about events behind, for example, Genesis chapter 6. But they do seem to cut across the consistent biblical worldview that we get of monotheism. And in the last episode, we looked at whether the claim that there was a divine council in Eden was there in the text. And all we really found there was a hint at maybe an angelic host present and marvelling at creation, but not really a council as such, and not really in Eden. This was a host in heaven. We also didn't see anything in the Genesis text about one of those angels falling and manifesting as a serpent in the Eden story. We looked at a couple of verses in Ezekiel and Isaiah, which are often taken as describing the fall of a supernatural being of some sort, but saw that when taken in context, they are just talking about human rulers that fell, the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. And, and certainly those kings may well have claimed godlike authority, but the text is clear. They were not gods, they were men, and they died like men. We also took a look at Genesis chapter 6 and started to explore what the Bible means by the phrase, the sons of God, and that's going to come up in this episode as well. And we saw, based on the words of Jesus, which we take as pretty good authority, that the phrase sons of God can refer to both angels and a community of faithful humans. And we looked at how to understand Genesis 6 in, in the light of that. So, Dan and I are now going to carry on examining this framework that Heiser presents in his book and look at a few other passages and see if they really are talking about a divine council idea. So here we go. Let's keep moving as we sort of gallop our way through this and move to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32, which I think is the basis for the next point. So we've seen the, there's a claim that one member of the heavenly council sinned and rebelled, then other members of the council sinned and, and took humans to have relations with them and took them as wives but now the claim is well okay so at some point in time god handed over the non-israelite nations of the world into the hands or into control and jurisdiction of these members of his divine council these sons of god which presumably yeah. is that well, some of them are people who've rebelled, or if not all of them. I'm not quite sure what the claim is there. But it comes from Deuteronomy, doesn't it? Yeah. So, shall I read what I've got in the ESV? So, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8 and 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. Okay, what's this passage about, or what does this passage actually say? So the, the claim that's being made about those verses is that this is describing the the situation where the one God, Yahweh, has effectively ceded control over non-Israelite nations to other gods, angels, sons of God. But his nation is, is Israel, is Jacob. That's his heritage. So first of all, there's a few textual variants around this this verse, particularly the end of verse 8. It says, according to the number of the sons of God, is, is what you read from the ESV. From the King James Version, which is based on the Masoretic text, 
it's according to the number of the sons of Israel. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls has sons of God, and that's why more modern translations tend to go with sons of God. Mm-hmm. But the Septuagint, so the Greek translation of from the Hebrew of the Old Testament, has angels of God. Now, the general conclusion is that probably the the most likely original is sons of God. Okay. And that sons of Israel is is an interpretation mm-hmm. put on it by the Jews to reflect their understanding of what was meant by that phrase and perhaps motivated by avoiding the appearance of polytheism because that's such a, mm-hmm. a consistent thing that's rejected in the Old Testament. And equally in the Septuagint, the Jewish translation from Hebrew into Greek, the angels of God is is again an interpretation. So most likely original text, sons of God, the other two uh, are interpretations of that. So let's assume it's sons of God. Okay. And we've already talked a lot about who might the sons of God be and seen that, okay, the angelic host, the angels can be described as sons of God. Jesus refers to them in that way. And also people, faithful humans can be described as that, God's people in that sense. So which is it here? And the context does seem to be about Israel, in which Moses, the speaker here, is is talking about the boundaries of the nations around Israel being set according to where Israel was was dwelling. And then goes on to describe, verse 9, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, Israel. He found him in a desert land and then established him as a nation, but then he, he rebels and in verse 15, he grows fat and kicks and so on and forsakes God. So it all seems to be about Israel. The chapter is about Israel and mm. the whole context of, of these speeches is about Israel and not about other gods. So in verse 17, for example, and I think we referred to this in, no, I don't mean verse 17, I mean verse 19. I'll start from verse 17. <laughs> they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. That's what we read last time, to gods that they had not known. So they forsook Yahweh. Verse 18, they were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Okay. So the people of Israel are referred to there as Mm. sons of God, sons and daughters. And there's another little allusion to that in verse 43 in this chapter. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children. So there's a couple of references in there. And and if we're not careful, you know, if every time we see this reference to sons or children of God, we start to think about these supposed other beings, supernatural beings that God has given control over other nations, it really starts to make a lot of scripture quite difficult to, mm. to understand. And I'll, I'll just take one example. So if we take Isaiah chapter 1, for example, the opening of the prophecy of Isaiah. So the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, then verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up uh, and brought up. And that's that's the word for sons, mm-hmm. but it's bene. Children, sons have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So is that a reference to these angels that sinned and rebelled? As you read on, 
it's about Israel. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know my people do not understand our sinful nation, a people laden mm. with iniquity. But it's very obvious that what the sons, sons of God here, is, is the nation of Israel collectively. So there we are. So in Deuteronomy 32, it, there, there doesn't seem to be any reason to to assume it's anything other than Israel. No, and we, we've already seen Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, haven't we, that yes. basically calls the people of Israel the sons of God. So so that's in the very context of that passage. I mean, it may, it's making me think of there's an, a possible allusion to this passage, isn't there, in Acts chapter 17. So Paul talks about the yeah. boundaries of the, the nations a little bit, doesn't he? Acts 17, verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way toward him. And, uh, you know, that's pretty matter of fact, doesn't refer to anything there about the supposed sons of God or God's ruling the nations in any way. No, in, in fact, the context of Paul's speech is you appear to be worshipping all sorts of gods. Let me tell you about the one true God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who, who made everything. Yeah, who is the one real God. Just going back to Deuteronomy 32 and, and that particular interpretation of it, that it, this is about God handing over the nations to other gods. You have to question, why, why would God do that? Was this something he was forced to do by them? Or, or you know, is he really God in that sense, mm. if he's being forced to do something? And if, if he's not being forced, then he just seems to be creating another problem to solve you know there are enough problems dealing with human beings and their behavior without creating a, a different problem hmm. okay so, so that's the idea there, that God handed over the nations of the world to fallen members of the Divine Council. And as far as I know, Deuteronomy 32, this passage, is the only verse used to support that, is it? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've commented on that, so let's uh, suspend our judgment just at the moment and uh, just get on to the next point, which is point four. So we're going to turn to a couple more passages now where the claim is made that we, we get this pantheon or this council of angels or gods appearing in different places. So, for example, or possibly these are the only two main places, actually, you get a reference, well, the start of Job, where we get the sons yeah. of God coming to God. So we'll look at that. And then Psalm 82, we'll look at that as well. So let's just think through yeah. Job, first of all. Okay, this episode is turning into another tour of enigmatic and obscure passages that yep. we're going to spend far too little time on each of them. That's what we do best. <laughs> yeah, so we're ordinary people trying to understand the Bible better. <laughs> Here we go. So, so Job, at the beginning of Job, there is the, the sort of stage setting, scene setting incidents with what's described as the sons of God coming together and Satan comes amongst them and issues this challenge about Job. That Job only worships God because he's got all the good things in life. And if you take those away, he'll he'll forsake worship of God. And uh, and then you read, there's a whole load of stuff that happens to Job. And most of the book is a debate between Job and his three friends 
essentially a meditation on the meaning of apparently meaningless suffering. And so you know, you read it through and you realize very quickly, this is not video camera footage of a conversation that, that actually happened. It's stylized, it's poetic, it's meditation literature, wisdom literature. And it's really important to see these opening scenes in the context of what of the genre that that job is yes may well have been an actual job who lived and experienced mm. you know these things but the way the account is presented to us is wisdom literature it's telling us a story around the experience of job and using that as a way of meditating on the meaning of, of suffering and this opening chapter just sets the stage with the sons of god i think we could see that as Another example of let us make man the the angelic host, if you like, there. Yeah. But there is this figure then, the adversary, and it's perhaps better not to give him the name Satan, but there's an adversary that articulates for the purposes of the story, for the purposes of, of the literature, the literary form that articulates this challenge about about Job. But as you know, Satan then he it's obvious he has no power of his own. Mm. to to do anything to job it's god that does all the things that yeah. happen to job as, as part of this uh, this story mm. yeah I, I think actually this sort of worldview divine cancer worldview however we call it and other scholars as well like john walton actually have done a really good mm. job of showing that the satan of job is absolutely not the satan of popular culture he operates very differently mm. this this character is not a malevolent being, an evil being at all. He he is depicted as one of the sons of God, one of who's fulfilling a role to test and to sort of be this counter proposal to sort of think through, you know, how is Job going to react in a different situation? So I think John Walton describes Job as this thought experiment, which I think is really good. It's this okay, yeah. well what happens in this extreme situation which then allows you to think through reality in in day-to-day mm. life which is very very helpful i think so it's this thought experiment it's this wisdom literature the whole point of this book as i think after you get to the end of chapter two is it the satan never appears ever again we've got no idea what happens yeah. to him and that clearly is because that's not the point this this is setting us up for the discussion so mm. we can't see that this book is trying to teach us how god rules with the divine council so yeah, there is another little reference to the sons of God in in Job. It appears right at the end of the debate when God steps in in, in chapter thirty eight, and God speaks about creation. Essentially, he's challenging Job and and his friends about: Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know, can you understand these things? Were you there when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So, if they let us make man in our image, yeah, that's the the angelic host not really a council but a, a host yeah yeah is there you know and jesus refers to the angels they are sons of god yeah and the point is they're observers there aren't they rejoicing with yeah. what god's done it's, but it, you're right in in the job account it's it kind of doesn't matter was there an occasion on which mm. angels of god kind of stood in a circle and it, no that's probably not mm. not what it's describing it's just a way of setting up the question yeah, for the rest of the book to meditate yeah. upon. Yeah, and it, and it's cl- it's important. It's in this genre as well, isn't it? I think that should be a yeah. flag for us to think about. Okay, so what about Psalm eighty-two? There's another text that people 
refer to. <laughs> I, I think I, I'm going to read this one from the the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. Okay. Because it's slightly less distracting in the way that it, it translates it. So the ESV starts off with something like, God takes his place in the divine council, mm. which is a sort of motivated translation, shall we yep, say. Yep. Hebrew is the community of El, or the congregation of El, the congregation mm-hmm. of God. So the NASB translates it like this, and I'll, I'll probably read the whole psalm, actually. It's eight verses. So it starts, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Mm. Okay, so (laughs) the guts of that psalm is about calling out injustice, social injustice and oppression. You know, how long will you judge unjustly? So whoever this psalm is addressed to, it's people... It's beings, let's say, who are failing to to enact justice. And they are facilitating oppression of the weak, the vulnerable, the destitute, and so on. But there's this comment at the end, I said, you are gods and sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men. And we've kind of seen some of that sort of idea before. People in positions of power, in positions maybe thinking of themselves as godlike mm-hmm. but actually being brought down and dying dying as men now let's look at a couple of phrases in this psalm firstly verse 1 god takes his stand in his own congregation views differ on the translation as we've already seen in the difference between the ESV and the NASB i'm not going to delve into that but the NASB translation god takes his stand in his own congregation does make a lot of sense with the later parts of the psalm that we'll we'll look at in a minute but now let's come to verse 6 which says i said you are gods and all of you are sons of the most high so a lot of this language about social injustice is the prophets are full of it yeah talking to israel the rulers of yep. israel you're you're guilty of social injustice it's no different from that and but there's this comment to them all of you are sons of the most high and we've seen that already addressed to israel that was deuteronomy 14 verse 1 you are the sons of yahweh your god and that is the the regular the common jewish understanding of this psalm that it is addressed to israel as as sons of the most high mm. and that's what this verse 6 is saying an example of that is a is a rabbi tanhuma 4th century Syrian rabbi who who writes an interpretation of the Sinai story of of the giving of the law to Israel at Sinai and in that context he writes this is for my sons for these I have made gods as it says I myself have spoken you are gods and sons of the most high all of you oh, so okay. there, so there's that clear Jewish understanding that this is a, a reference to the addressing of the nation, giving of the the law, them hearing the word of word of God, you know, when the voice of God gives the Ten Commandments at Sinai. So that's that's part of the picture, and that fits well with the phrase in verse one, which remember said, 
God stands in his own congregation. And we can see that as aligned with God at Sinai addressing his people, his congregation. But I think again with this, we can refer to the New Testament, we can refer to a comment by Jesus in John chapter 10. So let's just have a look at that quickly. John 10 verse 34, and I'll go back to the ESV for this one. So Jesus is being challenged, being told that by claiming to be the Son of God, he is uttering blasphemy. And so he says, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Jesus seems to be alluding to this on, on Sinai, to Israel, to whom the word of God came. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. And so Jesus appears to be using it in that in that same way. And it's also an argument from the lesser to the greater in that the force of his argument is if God in that context, that let's say Sinai Israel context said to human beings, you are gods and sons of the most high. Why are you saying that it's blasphemy if I say, you know, and I'm consecrated by the father sent to the world, if I say I am the son of God. So the argument only really works if the I said ye are gods is addressed to human beings. Okay, there's just one more thing I want to say and then I'll shut up on Psalm 82. And that is that the last verse says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. Mm. So that's a flat contradiction to the claim about Deuteronomy 32. Mm, interesting. That only Israel is the portion possession of, of Yahweh. Yeah. Not, not all nations. Okay, wow. So, it strikes me, Psalm 82, it, to read it in this particular way, the, the Divine Council worldview way, you do have to have a particular lens on. And I th thinking back to the tests that we thought through, it doesn't mm. seem to pass the test of, of certainly the comments by Jesus that seem to be counter to that. And again, I'd, I'd comment that there's no reason why this isn't utilizing or has hints of this divine council this pantheon idea in the language that's used but again is repurposed mm. i see that as, as as much easier way to understand the the, the references and to see see mm. the scriptures repurposing it and using it against the rulers of of israel who were acting with injustice so okay that makes sense so we've spent a long time jabbering on about this and we've done those four points. So there's there's three more to go. I don't know what you think. Do we need to go through the, the next few points? No, I think we've we've seen the, the Eden Heavenly Council thing is is on pretty thin ground given the text that's there in Genesis. The the falling of a member of that council and then subsequent other angels sinning, we've hopefully presented some other ways of understanding those scriptures that are in line with the monotheistic worldview and unpicked or at least started to unpick some of those other passages like Job and, and Psalm 82. But once we've got to that point, you know, the remaining points are about Jesus and his mm. healing of people possessed with demons, which we've addressed mm. in the previous episode. And then it 
it's going on to the plan of salvation thing which is you know humans becoming the heavenly council which if the previous points are somewhat unsound then then sort of fall away so yeah we've we've said enough i think we said enough <laughs> i mean enough. yeah we didn't talk about the whole you know one part of the view is the conquest of canaan is justified because the nephilim this mysterious word that's used appears in in yeah. canaan and so the idea is is proposed that the nephilim somehow continue they survive the flood and then the conquest of canaan is to to drive out the Nephilim from the, the possession that Israel mm. should have. And, and you know, that's when I start to think that, you know, this, all these ideas and these interpretations around demons and the origin of demons, it can actually start to become quite, possibly quite harmful just when you start to have, or generate mm. ideas like, oh, okay, so this, this conquest was justified because we're getting rid of demons or, you, you know, you might start attributing demonic activity to other things in your life and therefore go ahead and and act accordingly and yeah so it's a long long sequence of lots of different ideas and i suppose just to try and summarize so what we what we tried to go through this old view which is often called the divine council worldview this this approach as a way of trying to find this grand meta narrative in scripture but trying to find it as something hidden between the text you know this is the unseen realm this is the realm mm. that we don't see it's not even talked about massively in the bible but it's there hidden in its pages and so that's the the point of this worldview it's not really about trying to interpret the text as constructed or even as it's written as it's been delivered to us it's about trying to find what's lying hidden behind the surface and i think there's there's been some great work and there's some value in seeing the world that the cultural world that was behind the bible i think that's really important and the israelite culture no doubt a lot of the time had a polytheistic worldview and had in yeah. worshipped pantheons of gods no doubt they did that, that's yeah. without doubt uh, because the whole of the old testament is about put away these idols all the time isn't it so no, yeah. d- no doubt they did but the point of that is the bible is pretty consistent it's always arguing against this this view and from what we've seen i yeah. think it's repurposing it's using some of these divine counsel imagery and ideas it's it's always repurposing them to argue against them it's parodying them, it's it's using them to show, well, humanity and and broken rulers, whether that's the king of Babylon, the prince of Tyre, or the rulers of Israel, they're the ones that are the oppressors, they're the evil ones. And humanity and the evil hearts of humans is where the problem of, of evil and wickedness and sin lies. So, you know, that that's really, I think, the central thesis of the Bible is. And that brings us to jesus doesn't it and it brings us to the death of jesus mm. and why did jesus have to die well it was to change us we've had an episode on that scroll back a few episodes yep. you know jesus died to change human hearts and human behavior and that's you know that is the really really important thing this view of demons of evil spirits of angels really is a massive distraction from that and quite probably is reading things into the text that that aren't there i mean that's that's where i i would sit if i was trying to summarize yeah that's a pretty good summary that we've seen that consistent theme of perhaps human beings elevating themselves to a position of of godlike authority whether it's adam and eve you know reaching out to be as god right at the beginning or whether it's king of babylon king of tyre and there are all these passages that are using 
language that, yeah, parodies that and just illustrates that you're known by your fruits, the oppression, the injustice, and your end will be to die as as people, as humans. And that's just. That is justice. That is God's justice. But there is, you know, we always like to end with Jesus uh, Mm. in, in these episodes. So the purpose of Jesus comes front and center when it is all about redemption of human beings from that sin and reconciliation with God. Yeah. For a hope of resurrection to be sons of sons of the resurrection yeah, yeah. sons of god as as yeah. jesus said that's the hope yeah that's right and i think that's where we we land uh, or have landed with each of these episodes in the devil series well, you, you know mm. the importance of this topic i think is to really understand what the problem is therefore that really shows what jesus has mm. done and that can really practically help us think through our day-to-day lives because we have a worldview that is consistent with reality and with what Jesus has done and how we can walk in his steps and and follow him. So that's why this topic is, is we think, is important and why we've gone the way we have and been led by the Bible to to take us in this direction. But I think think that's probably enough for now. (laughs) Enough of the devil, enough of (laughs) demons and enough of rebellious angels. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think so good yeah (laughs) okay so onwards and upwards to something else after this but do let us know what you think of the whole series that we've done on Mm. the devil satan demons etc let us know what you think go to biblefeed.org follow us on facebook i've been a little bit more active on twitter recently as well so so head over to there and uh, hopefully see you again soon thanks a lot and thanks a lot paul